Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. I want to talk to you about the meantime. You ever heard that expression, in the meantime? I think one of the memes, and I love memes, I love memes. One of my favorite memes that's come out lately has been the how it started and how's it going memes. Has anybody seen those? Usually they're like relationship-based. It's like a picture of how your relationship started, how you first met, and the how's it going, you know, right now, and whether you got married or had kids or whatever. And it meant, I think it was meant to be kind of a sentimental, oh, we met at, at a party, and now we're married with all these kids and doing great. But then some pretty funny ones came out, too, where how's it going maybe isn't quite as happy as how it met. Have you seen these, or am I completely... Are you Googling it right now with your phone to figure out what I'm talking about? Um, I know that for some people, it's kind of like, we just got married. That's the, how, did, how it started is when you had your wedding day, and this great picture of wedding day. And, but now how's it going is like Lord of the Flies in the house, where you're both trying to work from home, figure out how to homeschool, and you probably just bought a $3,000 Peloton to exercise at home and didn't tell your spouse, but it's about to arrive on the credit card bill, and you got to figure out how to justify that. Sometimes how's it going doesn't always look like how it started. You know, I don't know if you remember this, but it was supposed to be a 10-day quarantine. That's how it started. Remember that? 10 days. That's it. Just quarantine for 10 days, then everything will be fine. And it's kind of been anything but that. Now you're suspicious of your neighbors who are hoarding toilet paper. And so you go to their house, and you're not there to just say hello. You're checking closets. You're checking drawers going, you're the reason why. I'm not naming names, but if anybody is ever short of toilet paper, I have a relative that lives two blocks away from me that has a warehouse full of it in their house of toilet paper. I'm not going to say which relative that is, but she did give birth to me. I'm not going to... If you're short toilet paper, we got you, okay? We got you covered. Pandemic, zombie apocalypse, we got you covered if anybody needs any toilet paper. Some things, the way things start, are not like it is now. You know, sometimes in relationships, things aren't the way they started. But when you start out, you're full of all of this anticipation and expectation, and you're looking forward to the things that are going to come. Sometimes things just start out as a promise, You're like, man, I can't wait to see when that actually happens. A lot of the prophetic words that we get are things that have not yet happened. That's the idea of prophecy is you're either telling of something that's going to happen or you're forth telling it, meaning that it only happens because I spoke that thing out of what God put in my heart. And so prophecy is always about something that's going to happen. And hopefully, if it's a edifying prophecy, an uplifting prophecy, something that's not doom and gloom, but something that's good, then when you hear that, there's something inside your spirit that kind of leaps. You're like, oh man, I can't wait for that thing to come to pass. But then you get up the next morning and the reality is not like what the prophecy sounded like. Why is it that where I'm living right now, how it's going is not like how it started? Has anybody had one of those moments, anybody hanging on a prophetic word right now that you have not yet seen, and right now it's probably not looking like it, I want to help you with that, because that's the meantime. There were some people in the Bible that had really great starts, and I want to share with you four of these. We're going to read a little bit of Bible this morning, but four people that had a great start 
But pretty soon after that, things didn't look like how they started. The first one is a guy named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, in verses 1 through 5, God shows up to Abram. He's actually called Abram at that time. So the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Man, who wants some of that? Whoever writes negative things on faith. No, okay. 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 All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went. That's a pretty good word. That's a good start, isn't it? So Abram went, and as the Lord told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. What a great start. A couple verses later. Now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. Doesn't sound like a blessing, does it? As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife. Or this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Like this is two verses later. Promise the world you're going to be a blessing. Now he's running because his family is going to starve to death. He's lying about who his wife is because he knows he's going to get killed. Man, how things are going are not like how they're started. A couple chapters later, we read about this guy named Joseph. Anybody heard of Joseph before? In Genesis 37, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph, this was one of his sons, more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe from him. Any babies of the family here? I'm the baby in my family. Any of the youngest? Any of y'all the youngest? We have it. We got it made. See, the older brothers and the older sisters, they never got away with anything, but the babies, that ornate robe was made for the baby. I'm not looking at my sister right now. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. But then check this out. Joseph has a dream, and he tells his brothers they hated him all the more. He said, listen to this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, of grain out in the field, when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. I love the enthusiasm of Joseph. His older brothers, hey, guess what? I just had a dream that my thing grew way bigger than yours, and you guys all gathered around me, and you bowed down to me. And he's telling them as if they're going to be excited about it. Then he gets another dream that pretty much says the same thing, but in a different illustration. He says that uh, he had another dream. He told his brothers, I had another dream. We can imagine them by now. Oh, great. Let's hear it. We'd love to hear your dream, Joseph. He said, and this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that cool? You're going to serve me. Are you excited about that? How cool is my dream? But they didn't really like it that much. But this was a prophetic dream that he had. First, it was that his brothers would serve him. But then even the sun and the moon were going to serve Joseph. That's a big dream. 
I've got this ornate robe. I am wearing the physical manifestation of my father's love and favor. Hey, where's your robe, guys? I didn't, did you, did you not get a robe? I got a robe. Did you not get a robe? He's wearing it. Then he gets a vision directly from heaven of what God's going to do. He's got the love and acceptance of his own earthly father, and he's got a heavenly father that's giving him dreams and visions. But how it's going wasn't how it started. In verse 23, we, say, we see, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty, for there was no water in it. How many of you believe those brothers didn't realize there was no water in it? You ever see those movies when they throw somebody out of a window of a hotel and they land in the pool? They're like, how'd you know the pool was there? Like, I didn't. What movie was that? It's got to be Die Hard or something. I don't know what that was. Lethal Weapon. I'm looking at Brent. He knows all those movies. They throw him into a well. And then the Midianite merchants came by and his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern. Maybe he thought, oh, Finally, they've come to their senses. But instead, they sell him into slavery for 20 shekels of silver who took him to Egypt. A prophetic dream of greatness, but then thrown into a pit and sold into slavery. David, King David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the prophet Samuel comes, and he says, he, so he sent for him and had him brought in. And David was glowing with health, and had a fine appearance and handsome features. That's a pretty good start right there, right? Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. And Samuel rises, takes the horn of oil, and anoints him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. What a moment. Anointed as the king of Israel. Anointed, and then the Holy Spirit comes on him in power. Man, you would think from that moment on, he's going straight to the throne and putting on the crown and getting all the servants around him. But when we see just a couple verses later, the current king, Saul, was being troubled by an evil spirit. And he had to have somebody come play music for him so that the spirit would leave him. And listen to this in Psalm 17, uh, in the same chapter, verses 17 through 19. It said, Saul says to his servants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. This was after David's anointing. They didn't know that David had been anointed king, but he had already been anointed king. The power of the Holy Spirit came on him hugely at this moment. But then this scripture then goes on to say, Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who was with the sheep. I need you to help discern this for me. David gets anointed king of Israel, gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and then instead of going to the throne room to take the throne, he goes back to look after sheep. Not even his sheep, his father's sheep. Could you imagine that high moment of, this is it, now it's all going to happen, and then going back to your day job that you never really liked to begin with. But I'm king, but I have an anointing. Yeah, but you got to go back and look after those sheep. 
That'd be kind of a downer, wouldn't it? You ever have that moment when you leave that, the prayer meeting, you leave church, and you're like, man, that was such a powerful presence of God. And then you come home, and you've got to fix dinner for the kids and clean the house and send that email you were supposed to send Friday by five that you forgot to do to work for the thing that's going to happen on Monday. It's just all that stuff, and it's like, I just want to come back to the anointing moment. So for David, the way things started weren't necessarily how it was going. Even Peter, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked him, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, and I tell you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the king, keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a pretty big, bold statement. I'm going to build my church through you. You're going to have the power to unleash things in heaven, not just here, in heaven. That's amazing. Two verses later, Jesus begins to teach his disciples about how he's going to suffer many things, how he's going to go to the cross and he's going to be persecuted. And Peter gets up and says, Never, Lord, thou shalt never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. How do you go from building the church, unleashing things in heaven, binding things in heaven to Satan? That's a pretty big slide. It only took two verses. Sometimes the way things are going are not how it started. Abraham promised the world, and next scene he's in danger of starving to death. His wife taken and him killed. Joseph, a prophetic dream of greatness, then thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. David, anointed king, goes back to tending sheep. Peter, first revelation and profession of Jesus as the Messiah, and then he's being called Satan. You see, sometimes you have to realize how to make it through the mean times. In other words, I've got this great word. I've got this power. I've got this anointing. I've got this promise. But in the meantime, things aren't looking like they started. And I want to help us with the meantime. I, I think when I have experienced in the years that I've pastored and led people, the moments when people get lost, if they get lost, when they fade away, when they turn to other things, it's never off the high moments of the anointing and the platform and the, and the prayer and the giving their life to Jesus. And it's never really because a particular thing happened, like a tragedy or an offense. It's just in the meantime. In the meantime, we get tired. In the meantime, we think, but I thought by now. It's in the meantime when all of the other agendas that we had in our heart that we had not yet surrendered to Jesus start to get louder and louder and louder. Jesus, I know I committed my life to you. 
I know that I said you've got all of me. But I thought when I did that, I'd be married by now. I thought serving in church meant that I'd come alongside that super hot, smoking, spirit-filled lady and then we'd have a hundred kids and life would be great. But now I'm finding myself just going from app to app, trying to fill a void in my own heart. Jesus, I thought by now, surely... I got that prophetic word that I'm going to reach nations and I'm going to be preaching the gospel and winning souls, but I've never even had an opportunity to preach anywhere. And I'm stuck in the meantime. Did, did I get it wrong? Was the prophetic word just wrong? When I, when I thought I heard from you in the secret place in my prayer time, maybe I was just wrong. Or... Maybe I was right, but it's because of him or it's because of her that these things have not yet come to pass. It's funny, but a lot of the prophetic words we got this morning were kind of along that line. Well, God, if this person isn't president, then I can't fulfill what, God's, what you've put in my heart to do. And he goes, no, no, no. If my people, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face. I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. What's required for revival in our nation is not who's elected president. It's if my people who are called by my name would humble ourselves, seek him, and pray. That's when revival is going to happen. Not in my notes. We'll keep moving. What do I do in the meantime? This Bible, this book, I was going to hold up my phone, but I have to have a physical book because otherwise the illustration doesn't work. I used to think about this book. And when I was a kid, I used to memorize scriptures in here. I even have the trophy to prove it. Yes, I have a scripture memorization trophy from Sunday school. Doesn't matter that my mom was the teacher of that class. I think I still won that legitimately. But I used to memorize these things, and I remember there was a season in my life when I just felt like this was a, a manual, right, of do's and don'ts, basic instructions before leaving earth, right, Bible. But it's not. I used to think this was a book of all the things that you're if you don't do any of the stuff that they tell you not to do, then life will be okay. But then when I got filled with the Spirit, I realized that this is a book of promise. It's a love letter from the creator of the universe to me. That in this word, it's not just instructions, it's heart. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a book of promise. You read through this book about what God has in store for us. No mind can know, no ear is heard what God has in store for those who love Him. I love that scripture. Anybody ever heard this? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. But if you read that scripture, if you continue on, it says, but these things have been revealed to us by his spirit. 
So what my mind, my eyes, and my ears can't see, God has revealed to us by His Spirit. This is a book of promise. But sometimes how it starts isn't what it's like now. But I want to help us this morning with what to do in the meantime. You ever hear that expression, when God closes one door, He opens another. But sometimes it's hell in the hallway. You ever heard that? What do I do when I have this great promise, but I'm not there yet? Here's the first thing. What to do in the meantime? Number one, don't get mean. The meantime doesn't mean it's time to get mean. Boy, if I see people since March, I don't know what happened in March, but all of a sudden, people just got mean. I mean mean. People that were normally nice and smiling and friendly just got mean. Family members, mean. We've been blocked by family members. Not unfriended, blocked. Like, you can't even search me on Facebook to find me, right? They're family in another country. But I'm like, man, people just got mean. Like the, the, the whole discourse, the whole like dialogue, it just got mean. So even when you post something, I'm just using Facebook as an example because I'm a Gen Xer. I don't remember what generation I'm in. You post something, and it used to be like a good dialogue. Oh, that's interesting, but have you thought about this? And about this? And, and hey, I see it this way. Now it's like, Bleh! And I'm like, people just got mean. When you're in your meantime between the promise and the fulfillment, don't get mean. Don't get mean. I discovered something. I don't know if you guys have found this before, but do you know that when someone comments on one of your Facebook posts, I don't know everybody's getting off Facebook now, but if, you, if someone comments on your Facebook post, you probably don't realize this. But number one, you don't, there's no requirement. I read through all of the user agreements in Facebook. There's actually no requirement that you respond. Did you know that? It gets better. Are you ready for this? You can delete someone else's comment on your post. Did you know that? There's a delete button. I'm not required to engage in somebody else's mean spirit. I don't have to defend myself. Because I posted something on my page doesn't mean I have to require, require to respond to your comment on my page. I read somebody yesterday that said, hey, if you're not going to let me post on your Facebook page, just unfriend me. I'm like, you unfriend them. Like it's, we have this idea that we feel like we have to engage with people who completely disagree with us. And I, I like the open dialogue, and I like to be challenged on why I believe what I believe, and I've had some great convos. But if somebody's going to be mean, I promise you, I sleep really, really well at night. Because I just go, oh, that's interesting. Delete. It, it, here's what it does. It disappears. Isn't that crazy? It goes away. And you don't have to respond. I love it. I can't delete conversations at church. Not that I would want to. It goes away. Just wanted to help you there. When you get mean, you lose perspective. 
because the tension of the meantime can actually cause you to lash out at those people who are closest to you. Not the people that you feel like are the cause of the delay. You see, when you get mean or you get angry or you're frustrated, you don't lash out at the source of the frustration. You lash out at those closest to you. <sighs> don't get mean. Beware of toxic relationships in the meantime. Those toxic relationships make you mean. They make you jaded. If you're in the dating process, if he says that all of his exes are crazy, get out. Because there's one common denominator in there. Don't get bitter. Stay soft. Stay teachable. Second thing, and gosh, Emily helped me with this. Learn to lean. Learn to lean. She shared a scripture from Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 5, a couple of weeks ago. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Who is this? Who is this coming out of the wilderness, but leaning on her beloved? You take me out of the wilderness, and I'm going to be like, man, find me some food, find me some water. I'm, I got to get out of this. Well, not me. I'll probably love it. But most people be like, I've been in the wilderness, Boy, getting back in civilization. But this scripture says, who is, who is this coming out of the wilderness leaning on her beloved? You know, in this COVID crisis and, and what we've been facing for a year now, it's a wilderness. It's new. We're, things aren't like they used to be. It's, it is a wilderness of all wildernesses. And everyone's going to come out of this thing leaning on something. It's what I've been concerned about as a pastor is because I know people that in the midst of this crisis, they've turned to drugs, they've turned to alcohol, they've turned to pornography, they've got all kinds of issues going on, and they're going to come out of this crisis bound up, addicted, and full of demons. Or they can learn to lean on their beloved. In this moment, if you can learn to lean on Jesus, quarantine with Jesus, you get sick and got a quarantine, I promise you are never alone. Quarantine with him. We'll pray for you as a church family from here. Quarantine with Jesus. Lean on him. Lean. He is closer than a brother. Learn to lean. In the meantime, in between the promise and the fulfillment, learn to lean on him. I said in our, our prayer meeting we had New Year's Eve, the word I felt like I got for, for, I'm not saying it's like the word for the church necessarily, but other people seem to be responding to this, is this word intimacy. And intimacy is found in the lean. It's when I'm leaning. You know, the Apostle John, he said he was the one who leaned on, 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 on Jesus' chest. Like that's the level of intimacy that he wants with us. It's okay, Brent, we're not going to have a men's retreat where we all lean on each other's chests. But we need to learn to lean. Like that level of intimacy with him in the middle of this crisis. Things don't need to get fixed so that you can connect to him. He's with you in the crisis. Do not let this time define you. The meantime means we give the time its meaning. And I know that when I'm coming out, whenever everything goes away, and it will eventually, and we're able to go back to whatever normal looks like, I'm going to come out having leaned on Jesus. And you are going to come out looking quite different than the way you went in. You see people start to come back into the grocery store, come back into the gym, 
It's like, man, how you been? And they're like, like deer in the headlights. Like, I don't even know how to, how to act right now. And probably more than anything else is I've just seen so much fear in people's eyes. I have not engaged with another person for so long. I'm a little fearful. I don't even know how to do this. Can I hug? Can I elbow bump? Can I high five? Can I, you know, what do I look like? You know, am I, do I look worse than when I went in? Like all these things just full of fear. And I'm like, I'm not coming out that way. And neither are you if you learn to lean in this in-between time. Third thing, we're almost finished, is renew and rebuild. In the meantime, renew and rebuild. Renew and rebuild. Renew and rebuild. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Isn't that great? Outwardly we're wasting away. Woohoo! So you're, you're shoveling against the tide. No matter how much you go to the gym, no matter how much you diet, you're still wasting away. Is that encouraging? But inwardly, I'm renewed daily. On the day that I go to heaven, I want to be fresher. I want to be stronger. I want to be newer from the inside than I am right now. And it can happen if I'm committed to this process. God, renew me, refresh me. It happens by confession, by repentance, and by forgiveness. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. If I continually have a lifestyle of forgiveness and repentance and forgiveness and repentance, then I am being renewed daily. Because the thing that makes you old on the inside is unforgiveness. It's a lack of repentance. That's what keeps you old. That's what wastes you away on the inside. But when I give it up, the Bible says his mercy is new every morning. Every morning I wake up, I've got new mercy. I'm renewed on the inside. Streams of living water are flowing from me. When I look at a river and I stand next to a river, every drop that goes by me is a new drop. It's not the same drop that goes back around again. Oh, I've seen that drop before. No, it's new. Everyone, new, new, new. It just never stops. Sometimes it goes a little slower. Sometimes it goes a little faster. But that drop of water I just saw, I did not see before, and I probably won't see again, but there's another one coming and another one coming and another one coming. That's what God wants to do in our spirit. There's always something new. We're always giving out and there's more. There's more. One of my favorite things about sports, so we're going to talk about basketball. Somebody had a prophetic word about basketball. You know what I love? Coaches do this all the time. If you've had the worst year you've ever had, like you lost all your veterans, you got a bunch of new guys in, they don't say they had a bad year. You know what they say? It's a rebuilding year. Hey, don't let the season define you. It's okay. We had a rebuilding year. Yeah, you won two games. It's okay. It's a rebuilding year. We rebuilt by losing, but you're either winning or learning. There's no such thing as losing, winning or learning. And if you had a learning year, it's a rebuilding year. So why not make 2020 and now the first couple of weeks of 2021 a rebuilding year? I'm going to renew. I'm going to rebuild. I'm going to lean in. Renew, refresh, rebuild. When you do that, you're going to pick up skills that you will need, but not realize that you're picking up these skills. If you're just waiting, if you're in the meantime, you're like, I'm just waiting, I'm just waiting, I'm just waiting, I'm just waiting. You're going to be miserable. But if you just trust God and keep building and keep renewing, you're going to pick up things along the way that you're not going to realize you're picking them up. But because you've been committed to the process of renewal, through confession, repentance, and forgiveness, you're going to pick up things you didn't realize. 
You remember Karate Kid, don't you, Mr. Miyagi? Wax on, wax off. You guys see that movie? Wax on. He's like, what am I doing this for? And then he starts hitting him. He's like, whoosh, 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 whoosh. he's like a Jedi. How did I learn that? Because you just committed to the process. You didn't realize the things that you were picking up in the meantime. Trust me, when you just begin this repentance process and go, Lord, would you search me and know me and see if there's any unclean way within me. And every time he puts his finger on something, you give it to him. Say, Lord, I, I confess that as sin. I give that to you. Now renew me again. When you do that, you're, wax on. Every time you repent, wax on. Every time you forgive, wax off, wax off. And you're going to come out of this wilderness and you're not going to be the same person that you went in. You see, David had to go back to lead sheep because he was going to need to lead a whole nation back to God. Here I am just looking after sheep. Have you read Psalm 23? It's the most well-known psalm there is probably in the Bible. That's because David learned how to tend sheep. Joseph had to learn to serve in Potiphar's house and in jail. Even when he got thrown in jail, he learned how to run things because soon he was going to be leading an entire nation in a time of famine. Peter had to learn that though you work hard, it's ultimately Jesus who brings the fish into the net. You know that miraculous catch a fish moment? Peter didn't catch the fish because he was a great fisherman. But had he, net put, had, had he not had the nets in the water, the fish would have never come. Peter worked hard, but Jesus brought the fish. I remember I had an internship for about two years working in another church in ministry, and I had some of the worst jobs. Romy and I were cleaning toilets every Sunday night. And I remember cleaning these toilets. I wasn't complaining about it. I was just happy serving God. But I did have this question. God, I know you've called me into this thing, but I'm cleaning toilets. And I didn't complain, but I went, I'm happy to do this, but is there a purpose behind this? And God said, I want you to learn how to clean the dirtiest toilets because people's lives are much dirtier than these toilets are. And I've called you to help people clean up. But I want you to see what it's like to clean up after people's messes and to come back the next week and do it again and do it again and do it again. I remember I was vacuuming church floors constantly. Man, that was a lot of floors to vacuum. We'd be there till 2 in the morning on Saturday nights getting ready for Sunday. This is nothing. And I remember him telling me, I'm trying to present the church as a radiant bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. And what you're doing on the outside, I'm going to be doing on the inside. But you need to see that I want to present the church without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. I remember our dumpster would get so full that I'd have to climb in and jump up and down and push the garbage down. And he's telling me, it's like that because it doesn't get emptied enough. I want you to learn how to empty your heart of these things and stop pushing garbage down, but just get it dumped out. Come back clean the next week. There'll be more to fill it up with, but dump it out each week. Live a life of repentance. This meantime is a place of process. And lastly, hold on to the promise. 
hold on to the promise. In the meantime, hold on to it. Some of you are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Anybody ever heard that? Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. I love that scripture. Do you know the guy's nickname who prophesied that? Do you know what his nickname was? The Weeping Prophet. How would you like that for a nickname? It's Jeremiah. Do you know why he was called the Weeping Prophet? Because the whole book of Jeremiah is telling them that they're about to go into exile to Babylon for 70 years. So keep the scripture in context. They had been attacked by Assyria. They had been attacked by the Egyptians and had sort of survived that. But now Babylon was coming to take them away for 70 years. That's what the book of... So he's weeping because he's telling them what's coming. And at this point, there's no avoiding it. This scripture is stuck right in the middle of this awful prophecy and saying, but I know the plans I have for you. Sometimes we lose the context because we're in the thick of things. We're in the exile. But they needed the scripture in the exile as a reminder that I see you, I'm with you, and I still have a plan for you. I haven't forgotten my plan. I haven't forgotten you. The promise is as valid today as it was the day that I gave it to you, but you've got to hold on to it. Our faith is not based on the circumstances that we're in. It's not based on the how's it now. It's based on the promise. I love when I ask people, how are you doing? They're like, well, under the circumstances, not too bad. Well, what are you doing under those? You're not supposed to be under the circumstances. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Get out from under the circumstances. Get over them. Realize where you're seated and put perspective on your circumstances. God is with you. Hold on to the promise. Hold on to it. Abraham held on to the promise. In verse 24, Genesis 24.1, it says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. It happened. Joseph held on to the promise, and he became the second most powerful man in the world and saved his family and caused the whole nation to turn to God. David held on to the promise, and in those same fields looking after his dad's sheep, he wrote psalms that we still sing today. Not only did he learn how to lead sheep, he learned how to lead. You want to look at a leaner? Look at David. David leaned on God, and it served him well and served his generation. When David died, it said that he served his generation. Peter held on to the promise. He stayed with Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we don't see a rash and impetuous fisherman. We see a man walking in so much power that even his shadow healed people. His shadow. And I want to encourage you this morning, like Abraham, against all hope and hope believe. Like Joseph, work diligently but don't get mean. Like David, lean on your beloved in worship. And like Peter, let Jesus repurpose you. Come on, let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness. Your word says that he who promised is faithful. You're the promise giver, the promise keeper. The promise giver is also the promise keeper. And I thank you for your faithfulness. Even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. You don't change. You don't wake up this morning and decide that you're done with us. 
In fact, you wake up every morning and go, I have mercy new for you again. Mercy new for you again. I thank you for this process of revival that's happening in us, Lord. We pray for more. We pray for more. We pray for more in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.